Hello, and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Adam Payne. And obviously we are in Liverpool for a Labour conference uh, special. Here in Merseyside, I am joined by, from my right to left, we have uh, a superb writer and colleague of mine at The House magazine, Tally Fraser. We have Emily Thornbury, Shadow Attorney General and MP for Islington South and Finsbury. And we have Bev Craig, Labour leader of the Manchester City Council and also a councillor in Burnage in Manchester, where I used to live. So that's nice, nice bit of colour. But where I'd like to start is Tally and I, and actually Bev, I learned in the last five minutes, we're all at Conservative Conference in Manchester. Tally, starting with you, what are your reflections on Tory conference now that dust has settled and you've had time to absorb it all and think about it? Well, I think Labour Party members might be quite pleased to hear this, but it, it did feel like a bit of a wake and a bit of a wake mixed with the start of a leadership contest quite peculiarly. Constantly you were hearing chants for people who weren't the Prime Minister. So you were at one event and you hear chants going, Penny, Penny. The same for Suella Braverman. On the Tuesday night after her speech, she had bumped the PM off a few of the front pages and you could see some of her team just looking like the cat that had got the cream, you know, they were delighted. And it, it was a very strange atmosphere, not as strange as, as this time last year. Uh, last year was unhinged, <laughs> but, but this year it still had a peculiar vibe to it. And I, I'm Mancunian myself, so quite like being in Manchester, but obviously all my family, all my friends were talking to me about it. And one of the things that they just couldn't get over was Toy Party Conference being in Manchester, and then the announcement on HS2 coming so late and I just learned without sort of discussing with the Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham or, or with Bev. So I imagine for you, Bev, it, it must have been quite an experience to, to watch it unfold sort of from the sidelines. Well, Bev, you, you had the sort of privileged luxury of uh, being an elected Labour politician who was within Tory conference. Not sure I'd call it a privileged luxury. <laughs> So um, how are you feeling about the Conservative Party? And- so, so I think the thing that we'd start with is that, you know, we, we host, as a host city, you want everyone to have a, a safe time when they come and visit your city. So, you know, we've not shied away over the years in Manchester of attempting to welcome the government of the day to come to what we think is a brilliant city and have a good time. I think, though, that there's two things that, that I would take away. I think the first is that attendance was certainly down. It wasn't the same numbers of people that have come in previous years. And I guess being inside it, the mood had shifted. It certainly was a place that it felt that there were more discussions on the fringes. But, but the second thing for me was that we were in this ludicrous situation where obviously there was all of the debacle around HS2 rumbling on. And look, it doesn't matter what you think about trains. It doesn't matter what you think about national infrastructure projects and investment in the north. This was something that either was entirely mismanaged in terms of how they handled the politics of it, or was unimaginably intentional that they'd come to Manchester and literally my office, about 50 metres away from where the Prime Minister was holed up in one of the nicest hotels in Manchester, and despite all of our pleas, didn't even have the decency um, to at least give us a heads up, never mind have a conversation about it. So it felt really surreal, because I'd be going in to to speak at fringes, I was on a fringe with Andy Street, the Conservative West Midlands mayor, moments after he'd done his little doorstep press conference, and you'd be walking past people like Mark Harper, people like Jeremy Hunt, 
literally could see them from afar, but would they have a conversation with us? And I think that's the bit that really got the Manchester public. It wasn't about trains, it was about how you do government and how you talk to people. Speaking of, we will get on to HS2 in a bit, but Emily, my reflection on conference was the Tory conference, well, the many reflections, and Tally and Bev covered them quite comprehensively, but I sensed we got a flavour of what the Tory campaign might be like when it comes for general election. We had talk of a hurricane of migrants and the Home Secretary. We had the Labour Party being accused of, you know, coming for people's cars and attack on drivers. We had quite direct attacks on Kia. So I think the consensus is that when that campaign arrives, it could be quite bruising, could be quite nasty. Are you as a party prepared for that? I think that the Tories have pretty much given up governing. I think that they are now just in campaign mode. I think that is what they're doing, and I think we're going to have this for a year. But what can they do? I mean, they can't talk about their record because, honest to God, they don't have a record that they can brag about. I mean, what have they done in 13 years, you know? Who's richer? What public services are better? What infrastructure has been invested in? How, you know, is our standing better in the world? You know, all of these things, it's such a fantastic opportunity they've had to govern our country for 13 years, and they've just frittered it away, I think. So they can't talk about their record. You know, and if they try and talk about what they're going to do in the future, then there's obvious, the obvious question, which is, well, you've had 13 years, why haven't you done it so far? So what are they going to do? So, yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to run a nasty, bitter, negative campaign against us. I mean, we kind of know that. And if they can't find anything, then they'll just make it up, which is also what we saw, you know, the beginnings of, you know, this idea of 15-minute cities and banning meat and seven bins and, you know, having to make things up in order to say they were going to change the law in order to defend us from the defend working people from the Labour Party was just nonsense. I mean, what you'll, I think, so you'll get that from one side, but remember, there's two sides in this mm. campaign. On our side, I think what you'll see is you'll see, yeah, I mean, you'll see us having, you know, a go at the Tories and holding them to account. But I think you'll see probably about 20% of that and 80% as saying that if we are given the opportunity to serve the British public, this is what we will do. And we have to run a kind of focused, positive campaign and not let ourselves be pushed off off that path by by you know by the conservatives running as i say a sort of nasty slightly hysterical campaign against us which will go on and on and on and i think people will i mean obviously the difficulty is is that is that it can put people off politics altogether mm. and you know that's something which i sometimes feel is almost is what they want to do as well you know put people off get people to switch off and then if you switch off and if you don't think that politics can make a difference and if you think everybody's the same, then only if you believe that things can be better, only if you can be positive and hope, are you likely to vote left? Are you vote likely to vote for the Labour Party, in my view? So they have to kind of burst our bubble and that's what they're trying to do. You sort of listed some of the things that were said at conference. Yeah. Do you think the Conservative Party has been taken over by the right of the party? Well, I mean, I think there are some kind of people who I would say were, you know, vaguely sensible but they seem to be the ones who are making up the, the most ridiculous of the stories. So I'm kind of slightly confused by that. I mean, it might be that, you know, they didn't really have anything else to say. And if they did have any policy announcements, it had all been nicked by the leader who put it into his speech because he wanted to have something to say. And so they wanted some attention. So they started kind of, you know, trying to spark, trying to spark up culture wars, you know, non-existent problems and and trying to fight illusion, you know, dragons that were just an illusion. So that's what they were trying to do to kind of get themselves some attention. As I say, even the more those who might be seen to be on the more reasonable wing, let alone the lunatic fringe, 
you know, who were obviously, a lot of them were learning from past, and they've had a lot of them, leadership campaigns where they've kind of come to realise that the most right-wing candidate is the one who wins the campaign. And of course, what was interesting was the number of people who've clearly thrown their hats into the ring. And I would include probably Nigel Farage in that. You know, if Nigel Farage is allowed back into the Tory party, which looks like he will be, and if he's then given a seat, then, you know, I'm not the first to say this, he could end up being leader of the Conservative Party and then we know where they're going. Seriously, do you think, yeah. do you think he will? Let back I mean, it's not, listen, this is not an original idea. I mean, I, you know, I think George Osborne was one of the people who, who suggested this, that if he joins and is then given a say, seat, then he'll go for the leadership. And, you know, that's how the Tories have always operated. Whenever there's any kind of threat from the right, they veer off to the right. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that happens again and again and again. And in a way, structurally, our political system is one whereby the Tories aren't used to having a threat from the right. So they do their best kind of amoeba-like to try and eat it by moving to the right themselves. And I think that's what's going on. Speaking of HS2, I mean, Tally talked about this, the sort of interesting optical decision from the government to announce it in Manchester in a former train station, no, uh, no least. But Bev, you had a very busy Tory conference because of the HS2. Yeah. We had this, you talked about this sort of extraordinary spectacle of Andy Street holding an impromptu press conference, almost like a William Wallace sort of moment outside. We know what the decision is, but Manchester, Birmingham scrapped for Prime Minister saying that the money saved will be spent on projects elsewhere in the region. I mean, what's your thoughts on that now that things have sort of dust has settled, but Keir Starmer has said that if Labour is elected, that it won't reverse that decision. What are your thoughts on that? Would you encourage him to think again, or do you understand why he's taken that stance? So I think there's a couple of things. I think there's the specifics in what the Tories have actually come up with. A collection of bits and bobs, some things that have already happened. So I was very excited to read that the tram was going to go to Manchester Airport. <laughs> it first went to Manchester Airport in 2014, so <laughs> great that that's still going or that the A1 that was first announced back in 2018 was going to get some help with it. So, you know, that's, that's really helpful. Um, I think, I think there's, there's, there's something that what we've been offered in the specifics of compensation, which is basically an election fund, something that they can turn around and they can say, well, yes, we might have taken half a trillion pounds out of public services over the last 13 years, but do you know what? Mm. Here's a couple of quid for some potholes. Mm. Mm. Um, they might be able to do that in the run-up to the election. But actually, you know, and I think this is what's tapped into the mood that's been around it, that actually for a long time, over the last 13 years, the big decisions have been swerved. And I think one of the things that, that was my takeaway is when you come out and you say, well, actually, I'm going to take difficult decisions for the long term, to make decisions that really just rely on political short-termism for a bit of extra political capital going into a general election really doesn't ring true. Yeah. Um, I think on the broader point, look, anybody that spends time getting a train in the north of England knows that if you're travelling through Manchester Station, you're more likely to get stuck in traffic on a train than you are some days in a car. So the reality is we're over capacity and we need a government that can grip these long-term decisions that we need to take around how we invest in public transport. In GM, we've been doing a lot of work around devolution. We've talked about the refranchising to actually take into action the refranchising of our buses after years of talking about it through Devo. And we're talking about how we can bring rail into that. I think the challenge for the Labour government will be to be able to answer the question that's been set. 
And that isn't around kind of a piecemeal question around which bit of infrastructure should you fund. And the conversations that we're having are positive that, that you know, the Labour Party and government will be able to have that discussion about long term infrastructure. Now, look, I've sat on the sidelines for the HS2 for, for quite some time. And if you'd have told me when I became council leader two years ago that I would have devoted quite so much time um, to trains, I wouldn't have believed you. I've been up for hybrid bill committees in Parliament. I even know different methods of digging the bloody things. <laughs> um, but the question is this, is that you need better east-west, you need better north-south, and you need better investment in the longer term. The government and the Prime Minister, actually, specifically, when he was Chancellor 2019-2020, has seen the escalation in costs. So I can understand why a Labour Party approaching power wants to wait and see some of the numbers around that because they haven't even shared the numbers with us. Mm. I was going before a hybrid bill committee to make the case for an underground station at a time when they wouldn't even tell us how much they thought it would cost. So I think the whole thing has been mismanaged from a government perspective. And what we'll be pushing for from Keir and his team is around, and Lou, Lou, you know, a shout out to Lou Hay here, who's been doing a brilliant job in trying to hold the government to account on this. Investment east-west, it's investment in north-south, it's investment in the short term and it's a plan for the long term. And that's what we need to see. Tally, one other announcement we got at, in Manchester was about smoking. Mm -hmm. The plan is the age at which you can buy cigarettes will increase one year every year with a view for phasing it out. I know you were quite keen to well, yeah, discuss I mean, this. It's a, it's a fairly politically canny move in terms of it doesn't really affect anyone who's going to be voting. It doesn't feel like the most conservative policy. I mean, the only other country that's done something similar, similar is New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern. So it, it did feel like a sort of strange thing to see Rishi Sunak sort of replicating something that Jacinda Ardern had done when they're sort of two poles apart. Look, it, it links into the NHS, which obviously there's a, a big issues around the NHS. He's trying to be sort of smart about it. And I, and I think it probably will work for him. Emily, I believe I'm right in saying you've given up smoking. I have, despite my cough today, I have. <laughs> I gave up smoking four years ago. Much to my surprise, actually, I mean, I didn't think that I ever would. I thought I'd tried and I just didn't seem to be able to. So what, what, what was the sort of successful... Um... Do you really want to know? I mean, it's quite a stupid story. We love stupid stories. <laughs> OK, OK, this is the stupid Colour. story. Colour. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm a woman of a certain age and I get hot flushes. And my daughter said that I should start taking these particular pills that would stop my hot flushes. And I said, oh, hang on a minute, these are the ones that are supposed to help you give up smoking. And she said, I know, but in America, Mum, they're using them for hot flushes. So I started taking them and my hot flushes continued, but I started going off smoking. And I said, I don't think this is working, darling. And she said, just keep taking them, just keep taking them. So I kept taking them and then I gave up smoking. And I said, I've stopped smoking, but I'm still getting the flushes. And she said, but Mum, you had to give up smoking. <laughs> so that's what's happened. The hot flushes continue and I don't <laughs> You switched to vaping. No, oh. no, I don't do anything like that. No, no, I mean, I've just like stopped. Or turkey. You know, just stopped. Moving away from Manchester and more to Liverpool and Labour, Keir Starmer has talked about his pre-election leadership being in three phases, as you will. The first stage being cleaning up the party as he sees fit and repairing that brand. Mm. The second phase being exposing the flaws in Conservative rule. And then the third stage, which we, are, we seem to have reached now, setting out a vision for what Labour would do differently. I know that Keir has been telling you in Shadow Cabinet 
to spend less time criticising the government and more time setting out fixes to problems the country's facing. Do you think the third stage, given there is such, and we've talked about it, there is such a pessimism, there's an anti-politics mood at the moment. Do you think that third stage is the most difficult? So it's sort of like, you know, even when you're criticising the government, criticise the government and then turn and then say what we would do instead. Yeah. And don't get prompted, just go for it, you know, so that we use every opportunity we can. Because, of course, the, I mean, the problem is, effectively, is that it's very much easier for a government, particularly a government that has so many newspapers that are so close to it, for them to set the agenda and for us not to. So we might want to have a week where we want to talk about, you know, crime, let's say, but the Tories are in the middle of something else and there it's much easier for them to set the agenda. So we have to be realistic about that. But when we do get opportunities, you know, so we're invited on to, you know, have a pop at the government on whatever it is, we also do need to be saying, this is wrong, but this is right. This is actually what you should be doing and this is how we would do it. Bev, anti-politics and sort of a public pessimism, mm. people looking around them at the country and thinking just nothing's working, everything's got worse, and a sense that people have lost faith in the ability of politicians to actually fix things. Is that something you pick up in, in Manchester and the conversations that you have with the people you, you represent? Yeah, I, th I think there is a, there's a frustration, isn't there, around being promised change over the last 13 years by consecutive, <laughs> and it is consecutive, prime ministers, and not really seeing that. I don't know, I'm very privileged in a city like Manchester, we've got 96 councillors, 88 of them are Labour, and I think every ward across Greater Manchester voted overwhelmingly for our mayor, Andy Burnham, at the last election. So I suppose there's, there's something in there that, that actually... In a place like Manchester, it's anger and it's frustration. The challenge for the Labour Party, in not just Manchester but other places, is to give the reason why they've got that frustration. And I think that's the bit where actually kind of the second point that you focused on in terms of shining a light on the things that have gone wrong, often most people, when they feed back, they've had too much politics over the last five or six years. You know, it's felt like we've been living in this constant soap opera you know, and I try to surround myself with normal people that don't spend their lives <laughs> at political conferences. And for them... I'm so sorry about this, then, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 look, the, the, a difficult the, hour I mean, for you. No, it's... Look, look I'm, 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 at, I'm at conference. I've just got loads of friends that like to joke about it on a regular basis. But I think for, for a lot of people, there's something around... You want to know that somebody's in charge, you know who it is, you know where they're going, and you want to be able to trust them to competently just get on with it whilst you can live your life. And there's something in that political settlement that's been broken over the last few years that everyone's been drawn into the constant twist and turn of chaos around what's happening next. And, and look, you just have to look at a city like Manchester. You know, we've had the front line of austerity, £428 million a year cut from our budget as a city council. You know, some of the harshest cuts have hit the housing market, benefits, all of those things have hit our communities. So we're definitely in the territory of anger rather than apathy. It's our job to be able to make sure we capitalise on that. Do you think there's a challenge for Labour in that, on one hand, Keir, Starman, Rachel Reeves, etc., are trying to provide reassurance, mm. and that takes the form of fiscal credibility, we're not going to be reckless with your money, but on the other hand is trying to provide hope, 
Do you think it's diff there's, a, there's a challenge there in marrying those two things? Yeah. My perspective is that there's always going to be that tension, but, but for me, if you think about where the Labour Party was in 2019 versus where we are now, I think it's understanding that journey, isn't it? If we hadn't have had to make the case as a party nationally, we would be credible in government and be trusted to make the big decisions, then we might have been able to focus a little bit more on the, what we were going to do about it. So I think you know this is a big year for the National Party. It's a big year to set out where they're going to make a real difference. But the point that across the country, in councils like mine, cities like mine, city regions like ours, Labour people in power are doing things despite the most difficult of odds. You know, we're turning around early years outcomes. We've got kids at GCSE outperforming the national average for the first time in Manchester's history. So there's lots of great examples where we're building homes and we're providing reform of public services with no money that actually the party can use us to make sure that our voices have been shown as good examples of credible Labour politicians delivering change. Tally, when Keir Starmer was interviewed on the BBC, he was shown a word cloud Yes. which has become an increasingly common feature of our, uh, our political discourse, for better or for worse. But on this word cloud, you had lots of words that people associate with Keir, and some big ones were don't know, mm. nothing. Do you get the sense that, although clearly Labour's in a much better position than it was a few years ago, that there is a bit of frustration, perhaps, that the public doesn't know more mm. about what Labour would actually do if, if it wins next year? I mean, I was having a, a coffee with someone senior in Labour HQ, and while they're obviously totally optimistic about what they can do, they also said that they recognise that right now, they're not doing that well enough. They're not putting it out well enough what exactly the party wants to do, what they stand for there's still time to go between now and whenever the next election will be. A lot can happen and that conversation can take place, like Labour can grab onto that. But I think it's now at the position and I think that people within the party realise that they're in the place where that needs to happen quickly and sort of thoroughly as well. They really need to lay the land of what they want for people and the country. She asked what Emily, developing. Well, the time's now to... Stage three, as we described it earlier, that it's time to sort of... Um, I guess there's a risk also. You don't want to set out too much this far from elections. For elections, going to be next October. Sort of theories vary on that. But I guess you don't want to be giving too much away a year out from an election. I think you also need to factor in you know, what we've done in relation to the missions. So, you know, the five missions are long term. So a lot of the things that we want to achieve, we're not going to do in the first year or the second year or the fifth year. You know, they are... They're kind of like the signposts, you know, this is where we're going and this is why we want to go there. You know, we may well take two terms to get there. I mean, on, on one of the missions that I'm most involved in is halving violence against women and girls. Now, we're not going to do that in a couple of years. And the sort of things that we need to do are not just fixing the criminal justice system, but also having a real change in terms of the misogyny that boys are, you know, faced with in their early years and what happens in schools and, you know, things like that, will, that, we, that will take longer. So I think, you know, setting those out and setting out directions of travel on these really important issues have been a very important part of this. And it's a recognition by Labour that we can't do everything straight away. And that, as I say, they, you know, the Tories have not just squandered 13 years. They've been sort of, you know, just managing a sort of decline. If we want to turn that round, it's not going to happen immediately. But we're clear about how we want to do it and why we want to do it where we want to get to. And yes, we need to kind of continue to put sort of flesh on the bones of that. But 
also being realistic about the kind of financial circumstances that we're likely to to meet. It's not going to get any better, I imagine, between now and the general election. And, you know, we don't know. Like we were saying about HS2, not only is it scrapped, but, you know, they don't make it possible for us to pick it up again. Mm. You know, they're selling off the land. The, the contracts are being, you know, compensations being paid for. The companies are moving away elsewhere. And although they say, oh, we're going to spend every single penny of the, what was it, 38 billion on other, other projects, as, as you said, some of them have already happened. Some of them don't even exist. Some of them, I mean, it's just like, it's a complete nonsense. And will that money still be sitting on a balance book somewhere? Of course it won't. They may spend it on projects or do you know what? They might like go, oh, we've got all this money. Let's have some tax cuts. I mean, we really don't know what they're going to do next. And we don't know what we're going to inherit. I mean, we're honest about this mm. and we're not pretending. We're honest about what the problems are, but we're also clear about where it is that we want to get to. Just a quick one. Do you think the government took the decision it did on HS2 at least partly to make life harder for you and Labour? I hope not. I mean, I don't know what that motivated them. Why would they go to Manchester and spend five days denying making a decision and then make, a, make an announcement in a Manchester train station that they were going to scrap the last leg of HS2 that they had spent all these billions of pounds on for 13, 13 years? I don't know. Certainly there are those within the Tory party who, are, who feel that campaigning is more important than anything else and campaigning therefore is have a go at the Labour Party. And so there may be some who think that, you know, that sort of mischief gives an extra, you know, reason for, for doing this. But it would be taking irresponsibility to a new level, really. Just come to your brief, Emily. Uh, hmm. I think it was announced last night that you'll be announcing a policy at conference about giving enhanced rights to victims of sexual harassment. Interestingly, you'll be working with Marina Wheeler on this. He's not only an extinguished lawyer, but is, is, of course is a former wife of Boris Johnson. Can you sort of talk us through that policy and also how did this collab yeah. um, come about? And well, people will have seen it. I mean, they would have seen in the last few weeks, you know, qualified surgeons working actually in the middle of surgery, being groped, not feeling the confidence to be able to take out a complaint, to do something about it. And these are highly professional women doing it in, and it's happening in front of other people and yet somehow or other they just don't, don't have the confidence to be able to whistleblow on that and the law on it is not clear if women surgeons don't have the confidence to do that imagine being a 16 year old intern in a television studio when you're assaulted by some big star and how you know are you likely to be able to, to complain are you likely to be able to do something about it so it does seem to me that you know we have to go further in terms of the law and we need to look at it now, Marina is a, a has been a constituent of mine. You know, I sold her a poppy years ago. We've, you know, I've I've uh, I've I've spoken to her a number of times, obviously in a number of different forums. And she is one of the most distinguished lawyers in this field. And not just that, not just that she's taken out cases against employers who have allowed these sorts of things to happen and not done anything about it, and allowed unsafe workplaces for women. But I mean, she's also taken the trouble. She could have just continued to do that and she could have just continued to sue people and so on. But actually what she's done is she's gone further and has qualified so that she can be a mediator, so that she can actually work with the victims and with employers and try to kind of make things better. I really respect that. You know, and she, as I say, she's one of the leading people in this field. So I was really pleased when she agreed to help me because I need to make sure that we change the law and change practice in such a way that you know, women are safe in their workplaces, for goodness sake. I mean, really, 2023. Is the idea that Marina helps you 
until the election and then that's it or is the vision that she helps you all if you get elected to government and that, that partnership would so i've actually continue. so so i'm actually announcing sort of three things i was thinking very hard about where the law still lets women down so there are there are three areas there's another one which is where where couples live together and they're not married and then they split up and what rights particularly do the women have in those circumstances and the answer is not much or very obscure rights and so we need to look at that again and you know we need to give them greater rights than they do they think they're common law wives which that somehow or other people think gives them some sort of rights and it doesn't so we need to look at that and i've got someone helping me with that i've also got um somebody who's also helping me with with uh with stalking particularly stalking online who again you know, she herself has been the victim of stalking online i think it's important when you look at these things to look at it from the from the woman's perspective, not just from the policymaker's perspective, but like, what is it like to be a woman who stalks online when the police won't tell you who it is that your stalker is or give you a photograph and you don't know where he is or who he is or whether he's following you, whether he's physically there or whether he's just watching you online or whatever, you know? So we need to look again at this. And as I say, Nicola Thorpe is going to help me with that. So I need to be able to kind of get these areas ready. It's part of the filling in between now and the general election of policy and going to people who have expertise and listen to them. One question to finish, and we'll go down in a line. When will the general election be? I'm not placing any bets on this at all. It sounds like either May or November, doesn't it? I could see a way in which they do May to avoid sort of issues around small boats over the summer, but I could see a reason they do November in terms of just sort of economic reasons and the hope that things will have improved then. I'm, I'm going to go with May for now, tentatively May. Yeah, one nil May. Emily, any? Yeah, I mean, I think we're preparing for May and fearing November. Mm. May would make sense, mm. but I mean, maybe there'll be a bit too much kind of hope and positivity in the spring, which will work against them. <laughs> and so if they have a, an election, as we know, as those activists in this room know, what it's like to have an election in November in the rain and the wind and the dark, it's very much more difficult to campaign and our army of volunteers find it that much harder. So that would be, I, mean, I don't want to help them, but you know, <laughs> it was like, that would be a reason to stay until November for the Tories, because it makes it more difficult for us to just do the pavement work that we do. Mm. Well, um, I've always thought May, but for no evidence whatsoever. So it's nice, <laughs> nice to see you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just a thought, you'll all remember that 2019 election, we're all walking around in the wind, the rain, the cold, those little hats that had the head torches. Nobody needs to do that again. Um, so I'm going to stick with May. Wow, so May is a surprise victor. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Labour Conference, as well as from Westminster, at politicshome.com. And you can keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking the link on our homepage. Thanks again to our brilliant guests, Emily Thornbury, Tally Fraser and Bev Craig, and to our fantastic audience here in Liverpool. And thanks to you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, then reach out to us on Twitter at, at politicshome or email us at news at politicshome.com. <laughs>